Larry Castle. I work with a youth group here at Community. I see some folks out there that I, I don't uh, know very well, and so perhaps you don't know who, who I am. I uh, do a lot of the geeky stuff around here and I work with a youth group. And in pastor's absence this week, he asked if I'd like to teach his class, and I, I said, of course, I would love to. And uh, the topic uh, that we're covering today in your notebooks and God's views of the news. In fact, I didn't check the page number. Harley, do you know what page number? 32? It's page 32. Okay, it's the same as the printout that I have here. Page 32 in your notebooks. If you don't have a notebook, we've got some gentlemen who are walking up the aisles here. They've got printouts of this particular lesson that they can provide you with. So just kind of look over, wave your hand at them, and they'll bring you one of them. All right, uh, just before we get started then, today's, today's uh, lesson is on race matters. It's issue six in your notebook. I believe Pastor took the last lesson out of order last week, and this is our last week of this class. Uh, just before we get started, in view of uh, Pastor Matt's lesson, uh, the message from last hour, I, I guess I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board on a commercial that we've been working on for the church. So I'll show you the uh, commercial just since it won't get public air now and Let's take a look at it real quick. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Right? Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. So, back to the drawing board. I guess we'll have to make a new commercial. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Uh, his message this morning actually ties very well into what we're talking about today. And I wanted to remind you all that and make a little fun of ourselves while we're at it. But we, we do think that way sometimes, don't we? Today we're talking about race matters. And uh, we've, got, uh, we've got several passages of Scripture we want to look at, some science stuff we're going to talk about. And I'll tell you up front, I'm no scientist. And I don't pretend to be a scientist. I find this stuff fascinating. I read a lot about it. In fact, I'm going to recommend some resources to you. I am a huge fan of the organization called Answers in Genesis. I, I uh, believe passionately in their mission, which is to support the message of God's word, beginning with the very first verse, Genesis 1.1. And uh, so it's an, it's an issue uh, that I have a lot of passion around um, and interest around. And then also, uh, just from my history, I'll just give you a quick little um, uh, couple items about my history that you may not be familiar with. I grew up in southwestern Detroit uh, in the 80s. I'm an 80s child. Any other 80s children in here? Yeah, all right, all you with the mullets and the 
you know it's coming back. It's back already, right? Skinny jeans, all that. The members only jacket's what I'm waiting for with the comb in the pocket. And Jordash. Jordash jeans, right? Well, it's, that was where I, when I grew up, and where I grew up was in southwestern Detroit, a very racially diverse uh, part of town. Uh, a lot of uh, white people, a lot of Mexican people, a lot of black people um, living in the same neighborhoods, uh, in large part getting along, but in a lot of ways still, you know, racism, pockets of racism going on, and people even who were um, good friends, uh, with people of, a, of another what we call race, and we're going to talk about that. Um, so seemingly getting past the race issue and then still having certain prejudices that creep up even in the company of your friends who are of a different skin color. And uh, so that's, that's my, where I come from, my background. And uh, in particular, uh, I, I, don't, I want to be careful to not pretend that I understand what it would be like uh, to have grown up uh, in the 60s or before as a person of color in our country uh, because I don't understand that. But I did grow up in a time when there was the, uh, the forced integration of schooling was in full force. And so when I was in elementary school, I took a bus ride to Mark Twain Elementary, which is over off of Fort Street in Detroit. And uh, it was in a predominantly black neighborhood. And I was one of the white kids on the bus who rode the bus into school there. And then when we went to junior high school, it was Wilson Middle School, which was right down the street from my house. And the same friends of mine from school and elementary school were bused in to our neighborhood, a predominantly white neighborhood, but you know, somewhat mixed uh, for school at our middle school. And I remember in my elementary school days, sometimes feeling really out of place, you know, driving into a neighborhood and, and you look around and uh, the majority of people you see just look very different from you. And I quickly found that people are people. And uh, that was a very good lesson for me. Um, but I understand a little bit of what it was like to, to feel out of place, to feel like a minority. And like I said, it's, I'm, I'm certain that it's nothing like uh, being a person of color in our country in the past century um, where discrimination and persecution were commonplace. Um, but because of that, because of that small glimpse that I've had into that, I, I do have a very uh, strong passion that we as God's people in particular take a biblical view on the sub subject of race, racism, and that we uh, start, like Answers in Genesis organization suggests, that we start first with God's word. And we calibrate our worldview based on what we hear God say. And then we go from there and we look at science and the world around us and sociology and philosophy and all that. And so that's where we find ourselves today, uh, kind of uh, at odds with the way we tend to look at things and the way God sees things. In fact, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to reference and I'll put on the screen a part of the verse. 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 6, we learn something about God and the way that he views people. In verse 6, it says, when they arrived, this is Samuel coming to anoint David. And when he arrives, he sees David's brother there, Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before, uh, here before the Lord. He thought, this guy, I can just tell by looking at him, he has got what it takes. And this must be the one that the Lord has sent me to anoint. 
And this is what the, what the uh, next verse says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. And then this is what it says next. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And that's the discrepancy between the way we tend to naturally look at things and the way God says we ought to look at things, the way he looks at things. He doesn't just look at the minor cosmetic differences among people. He looks at our heart. And don't want to give you the opportunity to make the mistake of taking that in the wrong direction. Perhaps something maybe you've heard on Oprah. Well, God looks at the heart. So you just look and see if it's a good person. You judge them based based on you know the goodness you see in their heart. We're going to see later as the lesson goes on that none of us fit that category. Um, we're, we have minor differences in the way we look, in our appearance, but at our base we're all human and we all share the same human nature. And that's the bad news. <laughs> Thankfully, we've got the good news we heard about this morning and we're going to talk more about today. So we're going to take a look at today the lesson starting on page 32, Race Matters. And you see in the opening paragraph there, that nearly a century and a half after the emancipation of slaves in the U.S. and 50 years after the beginning of the civil rights movement, race is still an important topic in our culture. You look at the recent interest in the Supreme Court's decision regarding affirmative action in the admissions policy of the University of Michigan, even something local here. Race still matters. And this, this lesson is going to review what the Bible teaches about race as well as some of the practical consequences for our day. And I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to take time to, uh, actually a lot of time to spend talking about what's the, you know, why does this matter? Why is this a big deal? And so the origin of human race, of the human race, and notice that at the beginning the Bible is clear that there are not races of humans. There is one race among humans, the human race. Uh, all humans are descended from Adam and Eve and are equal as creatures in the image of God. And we just take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We see that God said, Let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. And so God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible's very clear here in the account of God creating the first humans that God created two of them. God created man in his own image, and he created a male and a female. And further, if we look at the next passage there, the New Testament confirms for us in the book of Acts that from one man... He made every nation of men, and I'm reading in verse 26, actually, where the, where the underlining starts in your passage there. In fact, you know what? Let's look, at the whole, let's look at the whole section, starting at the top there. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Right there 
in the underlying text, from one man he made every nation of men. The Bible teaches that God created Adam and Eve and that they are the father of all human life, the father and mother of all human life on this planet. And I want to pause for a minute here. I could quickly say this and the majority of us would go, okay, that's right. But I want to pause for a minute and I want to, I want to linger on uh, what the Bible teaches about this for just a moment to challenge us, to ask us, do we really believe what this is saying? Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, we get a little bit uh, of an expansion in what Genesis chapter 1 teaches us about there. It's summarized in chapter 1. Some details are given to us in chapter 2. And I want to I read through a couple of these and force us to stop and think about them and ask us, do we really believe this? Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So God forms Adam from the dust of the ground, breathes the breath of life into him, and he lives. Verse 18 and 19 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living thing, uh, living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So pause there for a minute. All right, God forms man from the dust of the ground, breathes the breath of life into him. Okay, well, we've never seen this happen, but the Bible says that, all right, we believe it. Okay. But now God brings all of the animals before him and tells him to name them. Okay, maybe this is metaphorical, right? This is just explaining where people came from, and we don't have to take it literally, right? This, is, this is, doesn't mean God literally did that, right? Well, the Bible, to be sure, uses figures of speech. The Bible uses uh, symbolism and things like that. But there's a rule of thumb that we need to remember when we're reading Scripture. It's written in human language. It's literature. And we need to use normal rules of interpretation. And one of the rules I learned when I was in seminary was that if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And a second rule of interpretation that I learned in seminary is that difficult passages of Scripture should be interpreted in light of more easy to understand passages of scripture. So so let's think about that. We'll keep going, but let's remember, okay, this is something we've never seen. Uh, some people might question whether this is literally what happened or not. So let's keep reading then. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. So here we have, in detail, the description of God creating the first man and the first woman. And, you know, you've probably heard talked about the, uh, the importance of why God had Adam name the, name the animals in this process. God said it's not good for the man to be alone, and then he brings by all of the other creatures living to that point that he had made, pointing out to Adam that there's not a suitable mate for you here. And then he makes the woman. 
And like I said, there are many who would say this is figurative. This is just explaining that the origin of human life is by God's design. Okay, so we take a general principle from that. Well, for a host of reasons, um, from chapter 1 and the way days are described with uh, the ordinal numbers and the word that's used and morning and evening and so on that I won't bore you with. I think Pastor has actually done a whole series on this. Um, It's very evident from the literature standpoint uh, as well as the theology standpoint that God is describing here what he actually did. And stop and think about it. If we believe that there is an omnipotent being, a God who could speak the universe into existence, is it really difficult to believe that he could create human life in any way he chose to? It really isn't. Uh, it really seems silly to me that we would, we would uh, have to feel obliged to come up with a more um, you know, scientifically maybe acceptable explanation of this passage uh, because of, you know, people raising an eyebrow saying, formed him out of the dust, named all the animals, took a rib, made a woman. This is where I'm challenging you today to ask yourself this question. Do you believe what God's word says? If it's difficult to believe, are you willing to say, well, you know, I wasn't there. True, I've never seen a man formed from the dust of the ground and brought to life, but I wasn't there. God was there. This is his record. This is revelation from him of how he did it. I wasn't there. You weren't there. We're bound to take God's word for it. In fact, uh, who can vouch for God? God says this in a number of places throughout his word. Who's going to vouch for him? When he comes to us and he says something, when he says, I'm the Lord, Here's the truth I've spoken. Who's going who's gonna to go, yeah, I verified that. God's telling the truth. If God is the ultimate authority, if God is the source of truth, who's going to vouch for him? We have to depend on his word. We have to trust his word. And so here we have an account of God creating the man and the woman. And lest anybody still think, well, you know, but I just have a hard time buying that. That has to be figurative. What did the New Testament authors think about that? What did they think about what God said about how he created? Look in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, if you want to find the answer to that. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, all, uh, death came to all men because all sinned. So the Bible says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So stop and think about the implications of that doctrine taught very clearly in Romans chapter 5. Sin came into the world through one man and death is here because of that sin. If you wanted to say, well, that's all figurative, perhaps God used evolution. Perhaps God created the first living cell in some primordial soup and then by God's providence, over eons of time, which is what the day one, day two, day three figuratively represent, then God caused evolution to follow a certain course so that human life would eventually arise. If you know anything about evolution, you know that that, that does not uh, play nice with what we just read. It conflicts directly with what we just read because evolution is a process of death and decay and survival of the fittest. 
And if the Bible's saying very plainly here that death entered because of sin, the sin of the first man, there was no death before Adam. And so it cannot be that God used some sort of theistic evolution, that he used some natural process that he just set in motion and let go to eventually produce human life. The Bible teaches very clearly that God directly created the first man and the first woman. And so the origin of the races is a question that we want to take a look at then. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, challenging you all to believe what God's word says about where the human race came from. And then we want to talk about where did, where did races come from then? Uh, how is it that um, we have all these different races if God created one man and one woman? And this is where it gets uh, into the details of things that I've got to take the, uh, the word of people who are much smarter than I am about these uh, details of science and genetics that I've never personally studied firsthand other than just reading some of their writings because I find them interesting. You see, in the first paragraph under, under letter B there, many people still think that light skin is somehow tremendously different from dark skin in spite of scientific evidence showing that it's not the case. Um, there is, the bottom line, a, just extreme similarity biologically between people of what we call different races. Uh, there's been detailed studies and human skin pigmentation, pigmentation that you see there, um, using different kinds of stains and, and uh, the microscopic uh, uh, microbiology technology and tools that we have now that show that uh, there, there is pretty much uh, similarity between us uh, who have light skin and people who have dark skin. There's not a ton of difference between us besides uh, a couple of things that happen differently on the cellular level. And so we've got details of that for you there on the bottom of page 32 and, and heading into page 33. And the point of all this, though, there's a lot of details there, and I'm not going to just read through all of them for you. But the point of all of this is that there are minor variations, very minor variations that make us different, and it's on the outside. Do you remember the verse we looked at from, from Samuel? God looks on the inward. Man looks on the outward appearance. So... So here's where the differences come from. Little tiny differences, internal differences biologically, very minute. Um, and so there are genes for all kinds of skin color, the second section on page 33 tell us. And answering the question of where do the races come from, uh, really it comes from the genetic information that God created in the first two people. Uh, the text that you've got here in your, in your notebook tell you that the first two people probably had a brownish color skin because that is the color of skin someone would have that would leave the most uh, variety in the programming of their DNA. So somebody with a brownish color skin would have the potential to have children of lighter skin and darker skin. They've got the necessary building blocks to have uh, offspring with the most variety. The same couple with, with brownish color skin could have children with darker and children with lighter skin. So Adam and Eve probably had a brownish color skin. Some of you, I look around the room here. If you look around the room, you see a lot of white in here. We're we're fairly light-skinned bunch in this room. And I want to pause as I say things like that through this lesson and read through the notes that pastors provided here 
to help us catch ourselves. When I say Adam and Eve probably had a brownish color skin, do you bristle at that? I mean, you've seen the pictures. They're white, right? <laughs> I mean, I have that little Bible when I was a little kid, and it's got the picture of them in there with the bushes and the hair and, you know, and when everything was perfect and they're all white because we all know that perfect people are white, right? That's, that's that, uh, that prejudice that we have built into us that Pastor Matt was talking about that we think so highly of ourselves. And we think, well, the perfect people must have been like us, you know, the first people God created, right? Well, scientifically, and like I said, I'm going on the word of people smarter than I am. Scientifically, if the race of humans really started with two people, it had to begin with people with a brownish tint to their skin so that there would be the potential for all of the different skin tones that we see now to develop. And that had to happen again uh, with Noah and his family. You remember the human race grew and corruption grew with it and sin spread and God decided he was going to take it back down to Noah and his three sons and their wives. And so in those first families, there was a little variety, but very likely uh, they fit into the same category. The family which you see in section two there under genes for all skin colors, the family which survived the flood would have had to have had sufficient genetic variability to account for the full range of normal skin colors in their descendants. So they likely had middle brown skin. Uh, such people uh, would have had a mixture of genes which code for light skin and dark skin, giving them brown skin. So, and they... There's a little bit of discussion here about red hair and how that works in, and I'm not going to get into that because we've got, uh, where's Carrico? Is he sitting in here? <laughs> I don't want him getting on my case afterwards making fun of redheads. So <laughs> uh, that actually turns on its head the way we tend to think about race, we who have fair skin. You know, we would never, we would look at people like, uh, you know, the National Socialists in Germany who said there was this superior white race, and we would say, no, we know that's not true. But we still think of, you know, well, we must still be pretty high on the chain, right? Uh, but according to what, what pastors got written here and what scientists say, uh, that's actually kind of the end of the road when you get to the red hair. There's, there's no more <laughs> genes for variety left there. And so it turns on its head the way we tend to think about that. But the bottom line is this is a worldview issue, too. This goes back to the way you look at the world. Remember where we started off. We started off taking a look at what does God's word say? What does God's word say about race, where humans come from, that there is only one race, the human race? And because we start with a worldview that says, if I am going to know something, I've got to get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I've got to go to somebody who can provide the details. I've got to go to God. If we start with a worldview that says that, um, we're going to come to some different conclusions than if we start with a worldview that says my intellect is the ultimate standard of truth. And reason has to be the go-to play if I want to know something. Now, I'm not telling you to be irrational. I'm not telling you that reason is wrong, logic is wrong. Absolutely, those things are valuable tools that God has given us. God made us to think rationally. In fact, we think rationally as we think God's thoughts after him, as we, as we discover accurate ways to think about the world around us, our thinking begins to conform to God's thinking. That is, God's thinking is the basis for rationality. So I'm not by any stretch trying to say that we want to discount logic or reason or science. On the contrary, 
I'm saying the only way we can have confidence in any of those things is if we start with a worldview, a way of looking at life that says, I first have to have uh, a foundation to begin with, a foundational truth that cannot be proven from which I can begin to understand everything else. And if we say that that foundational principle is my own intellect, I'm like a guy in one of those, is it a gondola? Is that the boats they take in uh, Italy down the... Uh, in Venice down the river and the gondola, and he's pushed it on the bottom to keep going on the river. If I say that my intellect is the foundation of my knowledge and understanding, if I want to know anything fancy, here's 25-cent word, my epistemology, my theory of how I know things, if it's my intellect, I'm like a guy in a gondola pushing on my leg trying to get somewhere. I'm thinking that I'm my own standard, that I can figure things out by by referencing myself. We don't. We go to what God says. And so we turn things around. We say, what does God say? There's one race, the human race. And from that couple, all of the variety that we see in the human race now has come. And the implication there is that we're all related. And it took an event, the second paragraph there, it took an event like the confusion of languages that resulted from the dispersion at the Tower of Babel to break humanity into smaller groups. And so what happens is humanity is rising up against God in rebellion, and God confounds their efforts by confusing their languages. And uh, the notes here suggest to us that it's very likely this happened along family lines. And so you have groups of people now breaking off and living in isolation from other groups. And so your variety then begins to diminish. You begin to have people with certain genetic traits, skin color being one of them, living off in an isolated group, and so that group perpetuates itself. And social preferences then come in, and this is where we really start to get to the heart of racism. Social preferences come in, and uh, people, as an example that you see there, um, begin to discriminate against various skin types for marriage. People living in tropical areas could realize that light skin was detrimental to their health, to their health. Uh, so they would look at people with light skin as less desirable. And then people at high altitudes would develop uh, discrimination against people with dark skin because of uh, health implications that that could have. And so then you have these traits that begin to perpetuate, and you have groups of people uh, that have all of these external superficial differences that are perpetuated because of our, our genetics. And... That's where we find ourselves today. We've got a, a huge diversity in the human race, and it tends to be in clumps, in groups. You know, and they call America, America is a place where that isolation uh, kind of has gotten reversed and mixed back in. They call America the great melting pot, right? I learned about that in, in uh, civics in junior high school, the melting pot. So we all come together, and um, there, there have been in our history of our country and just in the history of the world, some very adverse reactions to that. Um, the next section on the next page talks about evolutionary racism. For a long time, as the theory of evolution, as a, as a materialist way of looking at where did human life come from, became more and more prominent, uh, people began to make the assumption, well, some people must be more evolved than other people. You know, they didn't look at it as one race. They looked at it as a variety of races, maybe pockets of human life, the, the mongoloid uh, branch of, of what we now call humanoids developed in, in their line of evolution, and then the, the negroid 
line of humanoid species developed in its own direction and in caucoid, I can never pronounce this, caucasoid is what they call it, began to branch off in its own. And so you've got different evolution happening. You have people uh, coming to power in places like socialist, National Socialist Germany uh, who capitalize on that and even mix in a little religion to get people um, unified against particular races like the Jews and other, and other races. And I've got actually a couple of clips. I don't, think, I don't think I have time to show you all of them, but I'd like to show you just a couple of them of uh, some things I've showed the teenagers of a college campus and talking to folks who say that I believe that this is all, we're all an accident and, uh, you know, we're just products of the aimless process of evolution and yet haven't thought about the implications of that. Was a committed evolutionist. Yes. Okay. So is what he did to the Jews right or wrong? Because he said the strong survive and the powerful rule. He classified certain groups of people as subhuman because they didn't fit his criteria. What's your response to that? As an evolutionist. As an evolutionist, um, never called myself that before, but um, I would say what he did morally was wrong. And how do you know it was morally wrong? Well, you don't. I mean, according to him, it wasn't morally wrong. So in his views, it's not morally wrong, but in my views, it is. So then I who mean, are you to impose your values on Hitler? Hitler's dead. <laughs> <laughs> when you're dead, you're dead. So so she's, she's grappling there with the implications of her worldview that says we're just animals. We're... You know, creatures that have evolved just by chance, and it's just you know, it's just a freak accident that we're all here. We're not the product of a personal creator, who directly created our first parents, with intention. The Bible says that God created us in His own image, and that all of us reflect His image. That uh, each one of us is like a little mirror designed on purpose to reflect God's glory back to him, regardless of the color of our skin or the nation of our origin or the language that we speak. And there's, there's been, um, in, in history of our world and of our country, um, people who would capitalize on this naturalist worldview to say that it's okay to look at people as subhuman, to look at aboriginal peoples of Australia as as just a little higher than an animal, not quite human. In fact, there were zoos, human zoo exhibits set up to demonstrate this in times past. And if we don't go to God's word first, really, who are we to say any different? I mean, it's just a good guess based on looking at fossils and you know, trying to figure out what happened in the past before we had written records. But if we have a written record from a person who was there, who made us, then we have something more to go on. If we go to what God's word says, that all of us are created in his image, then we, then we have a reason more than anybody else to not show favoritism. And that's what the next section talks about. There's discussion about the result of a curse on Ham, uh, a school that I went to for college for a long time, 
held to a position that said that black skin was a curse from God. That it was a curse from God. And they base this on a passage of scripture that you see there in Genesis. But this is nowhere taught in the Bible. If you find it, show me. I've read through it several times, studied, studied this particular topic at length, and it's not there. Uh, in fact, it wasn't Ham who was cursed like the doctrine often talks about. It was his son Canaan. And you can see listed there all the reasons that that's, that's really just nonsense. Among all people, we should not have a hint of favoritism. Does that sound familiar? That's what God's word says. Among all people, we shouldn't show a hint of favoritism because of anything uh, external, like skin color. The Bible teaches that we're all equal in creation. Um, The Bible teaches this. So it is written that the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. And just as we have have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The Bible teaches that you and I are made in God's image. And our brothers and sisters who have dark skin, who have yellowish skin, who have reddish tint to their skin, we were all made in God's image. And in the church, the church... God's called out people, the people that the Bible speaks of coming from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. This should be the one place where we don't see that kind of favoritism and bias and prejudice. But you look across the room. Sunday is known as the most segregated day of the week. Uh, It's a common phrase that, that you've probably heard before. And I just want to challenge us that we think about the impact that we ought to be having on our community. We are in a community here that's a pretty diverse community. Still, neighborhoods tend to break up along racial lines. But I hope that you'll think about that when you see somebody who walks in our door of our, of our church meeting on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. And you'll think about the fact that uh, this, is, this is a brother or sister someone who is a member of your race, the human race, that we want to welcome in. And there are other things that intimidate us, cultural differences that develop because we've split off into our groups and our our cultures develop separately. But we need to put that behind us because we don't take the approach that the naturalist takes, like I was referring to earlier, this Stephen Jay Gould, uh, one of the most prominent evolutionists besides Darwin himself, says that the biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of the evolutionary theory. We don't, we don't operate on that basis. We don't think that the world is an accident. We know that God made us. And this is what the Bible says our attitude should be. Galatians 3.26, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And back to the principle that I I cited at the beginning from Samuel. James says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. The word favoritism literally means to receive a face. When someone comes in to our congregation, 
and their face is different than yours, I hope that you will welcome them just as you would anybody else. And I hope that you will uh, begin to, if you don't already have a passion, to see our congregation reflect the complexion of our community, that we're a place where God's people come together, God's people regardless of the color of their skin. Uh, To quote something that is probably very familiar to all of us, I looked this up. I couldn't speak on the issue of race without looking up a quote, and I've never studied uh, his theology in detail, so I don't recommend him as a theologian. Not that I know that I couldn't. I just haven't studied in detail, so I don't, don't know that I could. But there's one thing I know that I could agree with Dr. Martin Luther King about in his famous speech, commonly known as the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, actually, the, the title of it uh, is Normalcy Never Again. And one of the most famous lines from it, he says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And here's, here's the bad news about that. And this is where we finish with the gospel, just like we did last, last hour. That that is the case. We don't want to judge people by the color of their skin, but rather by the internal. And we need to remember that internally they are the same as we are. There is no difference, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every man, woman, and child on the face of this planet, regardless of where they come from or what they look like, needs salvation in Jesus Christ. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That is why we meet together here every week, to spread that good news, to be impacted, to be reminded of how that good news should be impacting our lives, and to be spreading that good news so just like we were created to bring glory to God, that we're bringing other people and saying, look, God created us for his glory. You can glorify him too. And bringing all those people together to do that. Uh, in the unforgettable words of the great theologian Zach Efron, those of you with little kids know that's the, uh, that's the basketball guy from, uh, from uh, High School Musical. He said, we're all in this together. And we are all in this together. We're all in the same boat. You know, you're not better than anybody else because of the color of your skin. You're not worse than them either. We're all wicked sinners in need of salvation. We have that in common, and we have in common that we can find salvation in Jesus Christ. And uh, that should make us humble. That should eradicate any leftover thoughts of racism from our hearts when we realize that we are all uh, in need of that salvation because of our lost condition. I hope that I uh, hope that causes you to think about this a little differently, and I hope just in the short time we've had this morning that uh, I can challenge, I have challenged you to stop and think about your own prejudices. We all have them, and, and the only way to combat them is realizing you have them and uh, to try and adopt a biblical mindset, a biblical way of looking at the world rather than just taking the world's mindset and soaking it in. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you did not leave us lost in our sin, that because of your zeal for your own glory, you chose to send your Son as a substitute for us to die in our place, 
and that all men and women and children, regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of national, national origin, can come to him for salvation, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a passion for that mission that you've given us, to go into all nations and to teach, to make disciples and to teach them to observe what you have commanded us, to baptize them in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Lord, I pray that as we uh, work to carry out that mission, that you would uh, help us uh, to accomplish it, that you would be working in men and women's hearts, that you would work in our hearts so that we wouldn't allow our sinful prejudices, our sinful tendency to show favoritism to get in the way. Lord, please remove that, that obstacle from us carrying out the mission that you've given us. And as you bless us in our efforts to do that, Lord, we praise you for it. And we look forward to seeing your answer to that prayer as we reach men and women for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.